Find Your Feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. I know that some people listening to this podcast will know Arwen already and they'll know her for her incredible landscape and wilderness photography. More recently, Arwen spent uh, three months living in the Lofoten Islands and that was actually a scholarship to go over there and look at night sky photography and the auroras. But what I think a lot of people don't know about Arwen is that she's a healer. She uses art therapy and craniosacral therapy to heal people who have experienced trauma in their lives. I personally have been up upfront and close and personal to trauma and I've worked with people in the capacity of life coach who have also experienced trauma. So trauma to me is something that has become, you know, really interesting. And what happens to people after they experience trauma? There's even a, a school of thought out at the moment that we store trauma and experiences somehow deep in the body and it can manifest in the physical body, which is quite relevant to the athletes amongst us as well. So what I tried to delve into in this podcast is, well, who Arwen is, what she does with her work and how she links that to her purpose and her calling and obviously her photography. So I hope you find this podcast interesting. She's a very gentle character and that'll very much come across in this podcast. And when she was talking about what she does with her art therapy, it made me think it would just be really interesting to have a go, you know, to jump in there and see what comes scrambling out of your own brain if you were given the opportunity. So, yeah, I hope this raises questions, raises ideas and gets you excited on a very different level to some of our other podcasts. having me in your home it's absolutely beautiful and we finally got there this has been in the making for a while this conversation yeah yeah thank you very much yeah yeah awesome uh I am just really fascinated by your story I think that you have a lot of areas that we can gain inspiration and uh, understanding from around different topics you're obviously a well-renowned photographer now in Tasmania and in the wilderness Mm -hmm. sector and at the same time, you also work uh, in some really interesting alternative therapies, uh, particularly with trauma. Yeah. 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 So I'd really like to explore that today. But I guess before we get started, I'm really interested to know who Arwen is, like where she mm. came from. What, what, was, what was your upbringing like? Sure. Well, I actually grew up in Signet, south of Hobart. Yeah. So I was there from when I was six weeks old when my parents moved from Ferntree wow. and they bought a block of land down there. So we had 30 acres in this beautiful valley and we lived in a caravan for four years. <laughs> well, my parents did. Gosh. Just brothers, sisters? Or yeah, just I've you? got a brother, a couple of years older. Huh. Yeah. We have similar stories. Oh, <laughs> I grew up down that way as well oh, with a brother that. a couple of years older in a valley on a farm. There you go. Imagine <laughs> that. Yeah, so it was it was um, idyllic, but but challenging in many ways. Um, we we 
Right, so I bet my dad is an engineer and so mm. he um, built most of the house in those early years. He built it himself? Yeah. Right. Working yeah. at the same time? Or? He took uh, four years off to build the house. Oh, yeah, hey. And my mum worked, she's, she's a music teacher. Oh, I was music teaching at that stage. Yeah. yeah. And also doing a lot on the, on the farm. Yeah. yeah. And so you then spent the rest of your childhood in that area? Yeah, so we were there until I was 13. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad left um, the property when I was about five, I think. <clears throat> and he soon, he remarried after a couple of years. And then um, my mum, my brother and I stayed on the farm. Yeah, Right. So you were pretty much brought up by your mother? Pretty much, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We used to see Dad um, once a fortnight for a couple of nights, I think, usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and he lived in, in the city, so we'd come up and stay there. In Hobart. Yeah, in Hobart. Yeah. Um, and his wife had two daughters who are older than me too, but so there were four of us kids mm-hmm. in his household. Okay. Yeah. So were you able to maintain a close relationship with both your parents over the years, I guess right through till now, or are you closer to one in particular? I've always been very close with my mum. Mm. She's she's my best friend in many ways. Yeah, <laughs> really <that>? close. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been wonderful, and a lot in common. We've both studied therapy, and we're both okay. very creative and enjoy nature and things. Mm. Um, my father, we have a lot in common too. I think a lot to talk about, and um, we get along really well. It's it's been challenging over the years. Largely because he was there for his wife and her children, mm-hmm. you know, on that day-to-day level. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a lot of contact. Mm-hmm. And that was particularly hard for me and my brother who, who wanted more. Yeah. Yeah. And and there was, you know, tension as there often is in those separate yeah. families. Because you, yeah. you were quite young then when that then yeah. played out. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember when they were together... Um, and then, as I said, he married about, when I was about seven. Wow. Yeah. You were really young. Yeah. Yeah. So did that play out in any particular way for you, or do you think that had an influence on the way you were as sort of going forward from that phase, you know, in your early teens and into your schooling years? Were you, did you rebel? Were you, (laughs) did you maintain your sense of self? (laughs) Like, I know you're a young age, but I think it probably has an impact, doesn't it, on the way we go forward in our lives? It does, yes. Um, There's probably a few ways to answer that. When we were at Signet, by the time we left, um, so we we both went to, I'll go back a bit, my brother and I both went to Zoe Community School Mm -hmm. in Ferntree, so we Mm. used to travel up there and go to school there and... Um, living in town a couple of nights a week. Tiny. Tiny. 25 children. In the school. In the school. (laughs) Um, But that school was like a family and it Mm -hmm. definitely has had a significant impact on me as a person and on what I've chosen to do in life, I think. In what way? Um, In the way that... In that environment, with the philosophy of that school, you're given a lot of time to pursue what you want to pursue, to be creative, to spend a lot of time in nature, 
there was no rigid um, class structure. So mm-hmm. we did have some formal classes for English and maths, for example, but pretty well everything else we learnt while we played and while we mixed with each other and while we went on excursions and camps. So it was very explorative and, and supported as well mm. because because it's it's like a big family. Um, so that was 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 pivotal really and I have very fond memories of being there. It was also challenging because it was a small school mm. and there weren't a lot of girls my age. I had good friends there but there were times when it was a struggle mm-hmm. to, to have good friendships. And with that that could be a struggle for kids that weren't so independent or didn't yet know what they loved. Like you're saying, you know, you were allowed to explore what you loved. Yeah. And you, I think from something that we talked about a while ago, you knew from a young age that you loved being in nature. Yes. And you had a real fascination, curiosity with nature. Yes, um, absolutely. Was that already in photography? Had, had the photography come into play yet? or? I think I got my first camera when I was about... 11 or 12 before mm-hmm. we left that property in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was I was very fascinated with the beauty in nature. I used to play mm-hmm. out there with my toys and and create little kind of fantasy worlds outside. But we also did a lot of bushwalking mm-hmm. and camping with um, your mother or father. Pretty much with my mother. Mm-hmm. Went on on some camping trips with with my dad and his family, but the more kind of bush walks, bit longer walks, overnight walks and things were with mum. Mm. So we went often to places like Mountfield and Bruny Island and um, Hearts Mountain, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, and I just loved it. Yeah. yeah. We used to ski every year because there was always predictable snow, but, yeah, it's not like that anymore. No, it's <laughs> not. Things are changing, definitely, mm. but... We can talk about that almost in yep. time, but Absolutely. I'm kind of curious. So then, you, what you're really saying is that there were some in, big influences in your life at mm. that sort of pivotal ages of you know early teenage years. You know, there was the schooling environment. There was, in some ways, the adventure side with your mother yep. and the relationship you had with your mother and yep. probably your brother. Yeah. Um, but knowing that a family fractures at a young age, that you know. Yep. Did you, yeah, did you, what did you, who did you become? Like, did you maintain that sense of self or was it a traumatic time underneath all that? I had a traumatic time when we were leaving Signet around that time because, Mm -hmm. and that's how I got onto schooling, was that once we left Zoe School, we did homeschooling for a year, distance education, and then um, my brother Barney and I went to Woodbridge High School mm-hmm. and I found that transition very difficult, which a lot of Zoe kids did mm. because the high school environment is so different from what oh, we yeah. knew. And kids can be bullies. <laughs> Absolutely. And and different from the home homeschooling environment too, obviously. Mm. So I decided to go back to homeschooling and did another 18 months before we moved to Cunningham and I went to a friend's school. Ah, me too. Ah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I didn't know that. Um, so what happened during that time is that I got quite socially isolated mm. and, and you know, it was difficult with, with the, the family situation, with the, um, the separated family mm. families. So that was challenging. Um, 
and I had, yeah, some stress and anxiety for a few years and settling into a new school and moving out of this sanctuary that I loved but yeah. was also kind of trapping me in this, this lonely world mm. was, was quite hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's no surprise then that if you were homeschooled, you know, you'd grown up. Signet's quite, you know, isolated in yeah. some ways. You know, it's a good 45-minute drive from Hobart. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, you and then you were in a small school that, you did develop such a strong relationship with your mother. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. We spent a lot of time together. Yeah. yeah. I, I did as well, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. In different ways, yeah. but through, particularly through sport, you know, my mother yes. was my taxi driver and yeah. there were long drives in from the Huon to uh-huh, swimming and school. And yeah, <laughs> so we had through that developed a similar friendship and then um, our, fractured, our family fractured later in life. Okay. But through that, we clung together. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. It's common, isn't it? It is common. Yeah. 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 So what, you know, what was the, what was the dream? What were the expectations as you went forward in your schooling to what you were going to go on and do? Was there an expectation from parents that you pursue a certain career or were you supported to do whatever you dreamt of? Um you know, yeah, tell me about the values that sort of under underpinned what you've gone on to do. Sure. Well, I <clears throat> feel very that I was very lucky in the sense that we were, my brother and I were supported by both parents to really just pursue what we wanted to. Amazing. Which was really positive and not to be under too much pressure to to excel in, you know, in, in anything, but in particular in, in academics, I suppose. Um, having said that, I think sometimes that can make it challenging to, to find what it is you want to do and also to apply yourself, particularly coming from a school environment where we'd been able to just do what we wanted to do (laughs) in many ways. So transitioning into high school where, you know, you've got a much more rigid routine and you you have to complete tasks within Mm. certain timeframes and do things you're not so keen to do. Um, when I was at Friends, though, I I think I surprised myself and probably my parents with my ability to pick up um, the academic level quite quickly. So your ability to learn. Yeah, I I, I you know I think I did reasonably well in in those years through um, maths and English and those kind of standard mm. classes. If I knew I didn't want to do something that I, I wasn't I wasn't very keen, <laughs> like. I think science at that stage, I'm interested in it now, but at that time I, it wasn't something that I was particularly So what were you interested in? I spent a lot of time in the art room, mm-hmm. particularly in the ceramics department. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so we had a teacher there who, who I, I really liked and who, and who had a big influence on me just in the sense that she was very warm and, and welcoming and, and just kind of let me do what I wanted to do in many ways. And so I spent a fair bit of time in there until I left, yeah, at the end of year 12. Wow. Mm. Yeah. And so when you when you got to the point of leaving, uh, did, you, did you have any plan of what you were going to go on and do or did it just sort of feel like, okay, chapter closed, what next? It was a bit of that. I didn't have a big idea. I knew that I loved... Um, being creative yeah I found year 12 quite hard I I struggled a bit in those final months with exams and the pressure of that yeah and with anxiety um but got through okay 
was pretty sure that I didn't want to go to uni straight away. Mm. And so I ended up doing um, a year at TAFE in their printmaking department. They didn't have um, ceramics in Hobart at that stage. I would have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think I really wanted to go to art school, but I felt like there was probably some self-doubt there about whether I had the capability of being an artist, especially in mm-hmm. anything other than ceramics at that stage. And also I wasn't sure that I'd be able to set myself up and earn from it. Yeah. Yeah, I felt like I needed to, you know, find some kind of career path, but I wasn't sure what it was at that stage. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so what – did you have any role models or people that you just – definitely turned to for support and advice through those years or was it very much like a self journey to working out who you were and where you were going that's a good question um I think one of the advantages of the Zoe school system and of the way my mum brought us up was that we were treated equals probably not quite the right word but it, but it was a bit like we were treated as equals by adults mm-hmm. so so I've always felt very comfortable around adults and mm-hmm. so I did have a lot of um, contact with a lot of my my mother's peers in particular because she was doing a, a PhD in English and music, and so people there was a lot of kind of people from from the arts and and culture um, sector, I suppose, around me. So you were surrounded yeah. by influence, but not necessarily mm. one particular influence. No, no, I wouldn't say so. Mm. It's mm. really interesting. So then. At what point did this... So, obviously, you now work... Do we, maybe you can tell us about what you do for... Um, not your career. I hate that word. Sure. <laughs> what do you do for, for work where, you know, sure. at the moment? Yeah. Well, at the moment, um, I do quite... Technically, I do quite a few jobs. Yes. But um, <laughs> on paper, I'm registered as a creative arts therapist mm-hmm. and counsellor. Um, but I also work as a as a body therapist doing craniosacral therapy and massage, relaxation right. massage. So can you explain what craniosacral therapy is for those of us who maybe haven't come into connection with it yeah. before? Yeah, sure. So craniosacral therapy um, developed out of osteopathy. Mm-hmm. It was developed by um, Dr. John Upledger in the United States who was a physician in osteopathy and he discovered that we've got a system called the craniosacral system, which comprises of the um, the cerebrospinal fluid, which which is created in the brain and flows within the membranes that's, that surround the brain and around the spinal cord. Mm-hmm. And this fluid has a, a rhythm to it, so similar to our um, pulse, I guess. Huh. Um, there's a there's a pulse of this fluid, which, which to me, when I discovered that, I just thought that was amazing, and mm. and and he did well, too. We don't know about it. No, <laughs> it's not kind of common knowledge. No. Um, so it works with that rhythm, but it also works um, with the bones in the body, particularly in the cranium, and down the spine to the sacrum. And by working on the bones, we can then influence that, that membrane system um, and help to, to loosen that. So it's very, very gentle. It's not in the least bit um, 
forceful or manipulative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's very different to a Cairo or a traditional very massage different. where you're working yeah. on the muscles. Absolutely. Huh. So it's very gentle and you can kind of feel like, oh, you know, is this doing anything or what's this person thinking while they're on the table? But the results are, can be really profound. It's quite right. incredible. So could mm. you give us an example of like profound results that you can achieve in this type of therapy out of curiosity? Yeah, yeah. well, it's, it's really significant um, across the lifespan, but particularly with, with babies and children huh. because as babies um, are born, their skull bones actually slide over each other mm. so that they can get through the birth canal and sometimes they don't quite sit back Properly, or even if they do, they can be um, affecting the nerve system, mm. um, which can then infect the digestive system and the f- their feeding, etc. So by working on their their skull in a very gentle way, obviously, we can help them to improve their feeding and sleeping, and so it's quite huh. and digestion and everything. So that's probably oh. the strongest example in that sense. Huh. Um, works very deeply on the nervous system, so it's very good for insomnia and anxiety and um whole range of things one of the most extraordinary stories i've heard was about someone who had who had sight issues and and then walked out of the room and she could see again and that's because we by working with the skull it can really influence the nerve pathways as i said and Mm. and and unblock those so it's got a very scientific basis but it's also got an emotional and energetic component which is one of the reasons that it really drew me in yeah yeah and the I don't <laughs> I don't know whether you'll like me saying this but but so I've got to know you really more through our work yeah uh, you've exhibited your photography in our small galleries um, yeah. humble galleries <laughs> yeah. find your feet and have one at the moment and I think through that we've come into connection and started talking and we started discussing the podcast but mm. you come across as being an incredibly gentle soul but also someone that's worldly to the point where and I'm a very black and white girl. I, I mm-hmm. did medical school. I, you know, I've always, and I was brought up in a fairly black and white environment. Yeah. So, to me, you almost have a, a slight spiritual connection. Mm. And it doesn't, or it didn't surprise me when, well, you sent through your bio, and suddenly I found out that you were doing all these, you know, uh-huh. working therapy and yeah. trauma, and yeah. a lot to do with, I guess, in some ways, psycholo- psychology and emotions. Yeah. yeah. So. I'm I'm curious then to to make the bridge between how you went from your youth and leaving school sure. and not really knowing who you were or where you were headed to suddenly, you know, now working in that sphere. Like so how mm. where did that jump come and how did you make it? I think it was on several levels. Mm-hmm. I certainly had an interest in going to uni after that year at TAFE. Okay. And um Started there doing a range of, of art subjects, mm-hmm. yeah, a Bachelor of Arts. And then after about a semester, I think I decided that I would do psychology. Mm. Part of that influence came, I think, from family members. So my mother had already studied art therapy at that stage and oh, counselling. Okay. Um, she'd been a music therapist in nursing homes for a long time. Wow. Um, and my... My, I've got an aunt on one side and her cousin on the other side who had both also been founders of this particular art therapy institute oh. and they they are both psychologists. So so there was 
some influencing factors yes on that academic level and you knew you knew you connected to these people yeah so you sort of felt this connection sort of pulling you forwards towards that space absolutely and I was interested I've always been interested in 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 people and and Mm. how they function and how they think and I, I had been studying philosophy and and aboriginal studies and things so I was interested to to go into psychology yeah having not had much of a science background I was I was challenged by that, but but really interested. I, and if in fact neuroscience is one of the most interesting facets, oh, I think. Here, here. Oh, just incredible. I know. I I remember learning neuroscience in med school. And yeah, right. Suddenly finding that the the left eye goes to the right side of the brain, exactly. and then it inverts it and upside down, and out we come with a vision. It, it just blows me away that how powerful yeah. the mind is. Yeah. And I think the older you get, maybe. Not the wiser you get, but the more you come to appreciate the power of your brain and yes. the power of your mind, yes. the power of your emotions. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really true. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So I did psychology, not really knowing where I was headed with it. Um, did better than I thought I did, especially in statistics, which was huh. which is <laughs> what I was well, told was the worst. <laughs> Just, just. I think I just went right. I'm just going to apply myself. That's the only way I'm going to get through. By the end of my degree, I took a year off, went on an overseas trip, and then decided that I was, or perhaps already knew by then, that I would study creative arts therapy at this mm. college that my mum was involved in. Mm-hmm. In and Tasmania? Or? That's in Melbourne. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, the Melbourne Institute for Experiential and Creative Arts Therapies. It's, mm. it's a long title, but we call it MyCat. And um, so I spent four years there. Mm. Um, I did a graduate diploma followed by a master's. Mm. And mm. how did the... Uh, how did the the child who grew up in more rural Tasmania cope with that transition to Melbourne? It was a challenge, actually. I, I enjoyed it, especially for the first couple of years. I'd been there a fair bit as a visitor. I, had, I have extended family there. Mm-hmm. My brother also lives there. Um, mm. So one of the real benefits was just spending a lot more time with him and his wife. Um, by the end of the four years, I was quite stressed and quite unwell mm-hmm. and was really kind of running over my my return date in the sense that I just really wanted to be back home. Mm-hmm. Um, came back to Tasmania at the end of my degree with a real just reverence for the place and for nature. I just knew that this is where I needed to be. <laughs> and I'd always planned to come back, but I was just really ready for it. Mm-hmm. Um I'll come back to that because I just wanted to say that after that, I did take a year off, but then I went back and studied psychology again and did an honours degree in psychology Mm. with um, um, a thesis on mindfulness and then um, thought I would go on to do a master's in psychology as well and become a psychologist, but that's where, yeah, we took this other creative turn, which we can come back to. Mm. the other influencing factor, though, in this, in my work, um, very deeply, has been my own experiences of trauma. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, yeah. So, other than that academic and influence and that interest in using the arts in therapy, I certainly had my own story that that has really influenced the way I work 
Mm. Yeah, and the way I, I um. I empathise with with people. Yeah. In that. Yeah. I, w- I I did wonder that. Um, mm. You know, I again, you know, you you can't claim to know someone, or I, you know, can't sit here and say I understand because mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't understand your experiences. I don't think anyone can understand sure. them other than yourself. But yeah. when you have sat sat in similar shoes and mm. experienced trauma for yourself, yeah. or other things in your life, I think that is when you start to really connect to something, isn't it? As yeah. in for you, uh, yeah, you use your own experiences to create a deep empathy with your yep. clients. Yeah. And no doubt that plays out through your fingers as well. Mm, Do you, thank that, you. Yeah. I hope so. Mm. Yeah. Certainly the struggles that I had through childhood with the family situation mm. and also you know on a very um physical and spiritual level because I was involved in a car accident when I was very young mm. and and had surgery and bounced back physically really well but over time I believe in what I've learned about trauma I really am quite clear about the impacts that that has had on my life mm. on a, a a neuro cognitive level probably more than anything um influence on the limbic system and and how I've how I am in the world I also did a lot of my own personal work through the through the master's thesis in particular but Mm. but through through my years studying which was encouraged um as part of the course but that was really um significant as part of that journey is that your understanding now that, because I actually had a question down to ask you later, but it's super relevant right now, sure. is that I think what can stop a lot of us from progressing is this concept that it's not okay in our society to be selfish, i.e. Mm. to work on self, to mm. then work on others. Mm. Is that the understanding that you've come to now is that you really need to do that deep, deep self-work before you are you know, really ready to to fly and master and help others I do really believe it actually I think it's I think the potential if you haven't done a lot of your own inner work and you you work with people you can you can cause damage Mm. because you haven't come to a um um What's the word? A more stable place in yourself, mm, perhaps. Haven't found your feet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Not that we ever find our feet, I don't think. <laughs> Still, yeah. yeah. But also, even if you don't do damage, I think if you've done your own inner work and you've, you know, you've been to therapists and you've had that experience, then you're just going to be that much more able to respond to someone who mm-hmm. is in trauma mm-hmm. um, or emotional distress, and to be really able to be there for them and to not be too to triggers mm. um but you mean as in not take on board their trauma internally in you yeah yep or absolutely over responsive to the trauma either way yeah okay. yeah yeah so i think it also you know as you mentioned before if you've been through your own struggles then you are more able to empathize mm. but the potential then is that you can over empathize mm-hmm. which can can affect what they get from the therapy, the mm-hmm. client, but it can also be detrimental to yourself because you can end up in what they call vicarious trauma by, by taking on yeah, taking their on trauma. Other people's trauma. 
Yeah. 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 Huh, really interesting. Mm. I, I've, 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 I've always had a fascination with the, the power of the mind, like we talked about, yes. but then also, yes, what trauma means for you, how you use mm. it, how you can change maybe things that have been challenging in your life and put a positive spin around yeah. them and then actually, you know, use them to your advantage. Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing you, by the way, you responded <laughs> to that, you agree with that. So I was reading a book recently called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm, I don't know if you've read it. but I've heard of it. There yeah. seems to be this growing um, evidence to support the fact that people who have experienced trauma, be it physical, social, psychological, emotional, yeah. um, sexual, yeah. um, that the body, that it, it kind of is stored in the body, within the body tissues. Yeah. Um, can yeah. you, what are your experiences of that? What are your thoughts around that? I believe it a hundred percent actually mm-hmm. from from personal experience mm. um, but also from my experience working with people who've experienced trauma and I worked um, for a number of years with um, survivors of sexual assault mm. and just the amount of physical suffering that that can happen mm. and, um, as a result of that lifelong suffering is is just so um, crippling often Mm -hmm. and um, in terms of helping people heal to use that word um, is to I I think the potential to to have some level of recovery through the body or through using um, creative arts therapies Mm -hmm. mindfulness things that aren't just working with the cognitive part of your brain mm-hmm. is really going to help, and the research shows this now, it really helps to to shift that trauma out of the body. Mm-hmm. Even things like yoga now, there's a fair bit of research into yoga for trauma mm-hmm. because if the trauma's happened anywhere, as you said, but particularly physically, um, then it, it really is stored in the tissues. Mm. And one of the things I love about craniosacral therapy is it really acknowledges that and it works with this idea that the physical trauma combined with the emotional trauma um spiritual psychological is imprinted in the tissues Hmm. and we can feel that and we can help people to work through that yeah well it definitely it's definitely been my experience more recently that i've come to understand Mm. this but once I found, I don't know where the start point is for you, you know, whether you, sure. you, know, you go and see someone like yourself and you start working there or whether yeah. you start working on your mind and understanding your story and your mm. sense of self once you peel mm. back all these layers of, you know, life that have sort of come on top of you. Yeah. But I certainly found that once I started doing the internal work, which for me started working with a performance psychologist and starting to really yeah. grasp the story that I'd been on, the journey Great. that I'd been on and how mm. that makes, influences my subconscious choices that I make now, mm-hmm. particularly around how I love to help people, you know, yeah. that I often put others first, yes. <laughs> things like yeah. that. Um, but once I started doing that, what my experience was that as an athlete who's very in tune with the body, I, my yeah. niggle rate dropped. So my, no, I wouldn't call it injury rate, but I used yeah. to often take a very very long time to recover from sessions mm. or races um mm. i often had this inflammatory response it, i yeah. couldn't put my finger on it i thought maybe it was dietary related maybe it still yeah. is maybe it's 
by chance that things started settling once they started working on the mind, but I don't think it is. I think that it mm-hmm. felt like the body was like, uh-huh, finally you're listening yes. to me. You yeah, know? And wow. So, I yeah. mean, do you have examples that you talked about? You know, it is your experience that people who have experienced trauma, particularly physical, store that in the body. So what, yeah, what does this involve for you and your experiences? Working with clients? Yeah. 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 Well, there's probably um, numerous examples, but I guess I come at it from, I work with it often in those two different ways, so with the creative arts therapies, Mm. but also with the the craniosacral therapy, because I've found time and time again that, that clients tell me that their experience of just having talking therapies mm, mm-hmm. has really helped them to get really often nowhere, feel like they're going around in circles or they feel listened to or, you know, I'm not, not trying to discredit um, psychology and psychiatry because I know there's a lot of, you know, there's some, some great things there with mm. cognitive behaviour therapy mm-hmm. and there's lots of skills that really help a lot of people. But when it comes to trauma... Um, it's often very complex and it, and it is really stored mm. in the body. It's stored in the part of the brain that's not, you know, that cognitive thinking part of the brain, mm-hmm. even though that gets very caught up in it. Mm-hmm. So the creative art therapies can really help people to, to access that part of the brain and body that's, that's um, storing that trauma. Mm. So I've had people have very significant um, insights from from spending half an hour or more just doing art mm. uh, in, in that supported environment and, and being able to express things that, that there's no way they could uh, vocally mm-hmm. and even be surprised by that, go, whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> so that's, that's really significant mm. and something that I've really felt very privileged or honoured to witness with people. Mm-hmm. Um, with the craniosacral therapy it's i think i think it works again you know kind of on another level or deeper because because my hands are on the tissues and i can feel the changes happening in the body mm. it's not always vocalized um someone might be lying there and and tears start to roll down their face or some kind of facial expression there are other times when it's more verbal in a sense that i might i might ask them you know, your body's telling me that something significant's happening by at the moment, and we can tell that by monitoring the craniosacral rhythm I talked mm-hmm. about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about this part of the body? Is there a memory or an image or something that's happening for you might, right now? And they might say something like, "Well, actually, when I was ten, I was I fell off my bike, and you know." Maybe it happened at the same time as they were really upset about something or something really emotional was happening. And so that impact and just kind of festered away in the body and the body compensates for a certain amount of time. And then these symptoms flare up. Yeah. So, or it can be something a bit more kind of obvious, as we said, some, you know, bigger trauma mm. that's influencing the whole system. Wow. Um, and we generally find that if that emotional call it emotional somatic release if that that happens then the changes in the body are more significant as you Mm. said whereas if we stay on that really physical anatomical level 
you know, we, we certainly make improvements, but, but then they're not, not always as great. Level. Yeah. I love, yeah. I, I love this podcast by a um, psychologist called Michael Gervais. He's again, he's a performance psychologist yeah, and he's great. all about finding mastery, but he, he has this belief and I don't really know what I think about it yet, mm-hmm. that change happens through pain. You know, mm-hmm. pain is the trigger for people to need to change. And I'm kind of curious to know how, you know, how we as listeners or your clientele would get to the point where they know that craniosacral therapy would be for them. You know, yes. how do I know when art therapy is what I what I need? Mm. Do they? Is it a curiosity that brings people in, or is it a pain? What, what's your experience with that? It's a good question. I think often, yeah, it is. It is a pain. It might be that you know feeling where they've just got to that point where they've tried everything else. That can happen mm-hmm. sometimes, particularly with craniosacral therapy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes with art therapy, it can be people who've who've already got an interest in the arts. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not. In fact, it can be very profound for people who haven't had much experience using the arts um, because it's so kind of raw and, and new for them. Um, a lot, I guess, kind of in terms of my work history, a lot of the clients that have come to me have been through, when I've been working in services where they are referred there mm-hmm. anyway, and then mm-hmm. I, I bring the arts into it if, if they want to go there. Mm-hmm. At the moment, because I work for myself, it's more a matter of people choosing it mm-hmm. I think both of them um both those types of therapies are I guess relatively unknown or people might know about them but don't necessarily know much about them mm-hmm. or what they do yeah, and I that, think that can true. be a block yeah um and people might just kind of go oh art therapy I'm no good at art I won't do that <laughs> or um which they don't need to be good enough, don't mm. need to have any skills in it. Or it could be with craniosacral therapy, oh, you know, that could be something that's really fluffy and airy-fairy and, you know, is not very validated, mm-hmm. um, which isn't the case either. And I think often it's fear. Mm-hmm. It's fear of going to those places where um, they're going to really go deep into well, themselves they'll be vulnerable won't they it's a vulnerable space yeah. And, yeah. and you really have to be ready for that mm. and and it's really important that people people know that and in therapy they're allowed to just take it at their own pace yeah. um so if you were yeah. to turn that around then who who can benefit from it can the everyday person who has a curiosity about Gosh, what would what would art bring out in me? You know, because I don't think any of us get away unscathed in no, life. Really? No, that's right. surely not. <laughs> I don't think so. I think absolutely everyone has got something that's you know that's a challenge that they can work on. Mm. Having said that, we can use that creative arts therapy processes to help people work through kind of any life transitions or challenges that might be around um, work choices or um relationships at work Mm. or everyday relationships family disputes it doesn't have to be really severe trauma or anxiety or depression Mm. or something like that um i've done a fair bit of uh training with with people who've come from various backgrounds and want to learn how to use the arts therapies and with them it's, it's all very experiential so they all get a chance to do these arts 
um, in a therapeutic way. And it's just incredible witnessing what people mm. discover about themselves. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so I think it's it's really, really open to anybody. Anyone. Who's interested? Huh. Certainly got yeah. my curiosity going. Oh, I have great. to admit. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's fun. People yeah. love it. Yeah. Where do you start in art therapy? Like, is it drawing? Is it painting? Is it you know finger painting? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> um, well, I guess my training is what they call multimodal creative mm-hmm. arts. So it's it's any of those things. Okay. It might be music. It might be dance. It might be writing. Writing. Um, I've also worked a lot with children where we call it play therapy, really. We have a lot of toys and they're just basically able to express what's happening for them through play. Mm-hmm. There can often be resistance to using the arts, as I said before, in that therapeutic context. Even if people want to, they can yeah. get stuck in their own story and just talking. Um, but also they might feel like, oh, you know, I'm going to be judged mm. on what I create or what's going to come out of this. But often... Particularly in those cases, I'll start with something fairly non-threatening like spreading out a whole lot of visual images that people can choose some from that speak to them in some way. Mm-hmm. Collage is a good one. <laughs> um, using a sand tray and putting objects in it. Probably often we might steer away from starting straight away with drawing or painting because of that sense of oh, I'm not very good at this yes. <laughs> yeah yes. I'm going to be judged by what I draw absolutely yeah I can get that yeah that resonates yeah yeah other times it's it's perfectly appropriate to to say oh you know what well, what if we just make some marks on paper about how that feels for you you know what's what color would you choose and, and it might just be a, a black mess on this piece of paper but that's that's what it, what that's it is it. that's yeah that's what they're feeling that's what's happening for them in their body or whatever so you yeah. must get a lot of reward I mean I'm, I'm I no doubt imagine it's a challenging workspace to be in and you have to be quite strong on your own two feet sure. to be able to sort of work in that sphere yeah. with trauma but um but yeah rewarding nonetheless mm-hmm. but has it been challenging like you mentioned a bit going back that it's it is fringe it's not mainstream you require on practitioners referring to you has it been challenging frustrating okay to get your foot in that door you're now working on your own as well Mm. which adds a whole new element of challenge to this sector yes it is challenge definitely i've i've always had an interest in i guess a preference for working for myself and as a contractor I mm. think I, I I like the variety and it suits me um sometimes I, t- I take my work to schools or into residential properties things mm. like that um what's always really wonderful is when the work comes to you <laughs> and occasionally it does I was invited to do a program in Ogilvy High School a couple mm. of years ago and ran that every year for three years I think so, so that's been, um, including last year, so we'll see where it goes next. Mm. But things like that are really positive. Um, when I was working in a service, it was very different because the work was there, but then you're more restricted by the, the um, even just what's provided for you to work with or the work environment. Mm-hmm. But also people's expectations. I think if you're employed as a counsellor and people come for counselling, 
again, it might be that it's more talking orientated, which which is one of the reasons why I I have stepped aside from doing mm-hmm. predominantly that work. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why originally I didn't want to train as a counsellor. I wanted to train as an art therapist. Mm-hmm. I didn't mm-hmm. want to just sit and talk. And talk. Yeah, yeah. Because so, you do. You go around in your own head. I think we yeah. all know that when you're trying to nut out a a challenge in your brain and you know your brain can mull and go around in circles yeah. and I could yeah I can get that yeah. yeah yeah I mean there's certainly benefits from having some amount of verbalization yeah we do that in art therapy um going back to your question though about the challenges I I, I think even though I've I seem to have a bit of a kind of business head I can I can kind of nut out a lot of the practical administrative business stuff but in terms of promoting my work and, and really drumming up referrals, mm. and it's the same in my photography life, I've found that really challenging. I don't like pushing myself out there. Mm. It's very hard for me to do, and I think that that can mean sometimes I, I don't get the number mm. that I might get otherwise. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, um, I can empathise with that one too. Thank I, you. Uh, I, and yeah. I... I think it's actually admirable and I think because of that you that there's an attractive quality around you you know like people will go out of their way to to help you out <laughs> and that's Thank not you. by being mm. needy that's just mm. by being a beautiful person who just genuinely loves what they do you're Thank not there you. for self-promotion no but it is no. it is hard and it's hard in the modern world where social media has taken over yeah you know that yeah it's you have to somehow get your voice out there but mm. you you are and and that actually then leads me straight towards I guess the other part of our and a huge part of you is your photography mm-hmm. and your wilderness photography um you said that started you knew you had a, a love of beauty at an early age yes so tell me about how that grew into doing what you do now well I guess Having done ceramics and arts and a bit of photography early on and then doing my creative arts therapy training, I was really just um, able to feel like you could work in any modality mm. and that and that's okay. Mm-hmm. So um, it felt like it was quite natural for me just to kind of go, well, I'm just going to do a bit more with my camera now. You know, like I used photography a fair bit during my master's. Mm-hmm thesis um and that's probably when I really realized it was probably before that actually but um yeah I guess I I I've I probably discovered more of the therapeutic benefit of it mm-hmm. during that time for you yeah, yeah yeah and when I returned to Tasmania I was just so happy to be back mm. and to be close to the natural environment that it was very Week, I was very quick. Sorry to to pick up the camera more, and to buy my first digital SLR, and um, I was also looking at a lot of other photography at that time and being encouraged and, and influenced. And who, yeah. and whose photography were you role modeling or looking at to gain inspiration from at that time? I was particularly um, influenced by Wolfgang Luwahi. Hmm. Yeah. 
who probably you know influences a lot of people. I would love to have him on this podcast. Wouldn't that be great? I've talked about it. Excellent. Sorry, I stole your light. No, no. (laughs) I I'd never seen the kind of macro photography that he was doing, Mm. and was just it's just so beautiful. And you mentioned before that I think you said there's a spiritual quality to my work, which is what Mm -hmm. I certainly feel and Mm -hmm. I felt like there was a similar quality to his work and and it did it did kind of make me go oh wow look at this small world that's out there that Mm. you know we don't really know and acknowledge but that we can explore through the macro lens Mm. and I just loved it and I just I was living in a city but I just found whatever I could to take photos of and and met Wolfgang pretty early on through buying one of his his photographs um and he was so generous and kind with his teaching. I did a couple of his workshops and his mentoring that um, he he definitely had a big impact on my confidence more than anything. Mm. Just to have someone go, you've you got an eye for this and, and, and enjoy it and just keep going. This <laughs> was really, uh, you know, and more than that, it was really, really wonderful. I also did an adult ed class and um, subsequently met many other of Tasmania's amazing wilderness photographers who I looked up to for years, like Rob Blakers. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, both of whom have been involved with Find Your Feet, I know. Yeah. So I felt extremely privileged to have those people validating my work and mm. and, and more uh, other people as well. Um and and taking me out and taking photos and that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And you didn't just follow in anyone's footsteps. You know, when you look at your work, it is uniquely different. You know, as I think particularly you have this love of nightscapes. Yeah. Uh, where did that come from? Thank you. That's really um, important to me that that, that that's recognised because, oh, because I made so. a very clear choice at that stage when I went... You know, Tasmania's got these incredible wilderness photographers who've got a, a big body of work that's mm. really historically pronounced in Tasmania with Peter Dombrovskis and mm. etc. So I really kind of went, you know, people were doing that and I don't need to try to get anything near that level. And I didn't think that I could. Um, and I had this real interest in macro very quickly I developed an interest in night photography and few people were doing it at that stage. Nice. Yeah. Um, there was um, the Aurora Australis Tasmania Facebook page mm-hmm. that was quite small, a couple of hundred people, and I just kind of went, oh, my God, I have loved auroras in the night sky since I was really little. I used to see it at the farm. Mm. And when I discovered I could photograph them with the equipment I had, I just fell in love with it very quickly yeah. and um, kind of, yeah, felt like macro and night skies were two things that, that are kind of less less done in the photography yeah. world. It's changed a bit now. It definitely feels when you look at your work that it is representative of your personality, you know, that like, you. It, it's, it's bright, um, it's interesting, like it, it's intriguing, it sort of draws you in it, but... But I can, you can feel when you talk to you, and it comes out obviously in, in what we're t- talking today that there's there's a darker side 
to you, mm. you know, a deeper side yeah. that we don't see as the mm-hmm. little bright bubbly almond mm-hmm. that we you know, meet in our daily lives. And, it, yeah, so your, your work definitely has a spiritual quality for me when I look at it. <laughs> what does spiritual mean to you, you know, as a person? It's a good question. Um, <laughs> I think for me it's it's probably pretty much nature to do with nature. I just, as I said, from a very early age, I just had this reverence for nature and, and the, the way it made me feel mm-hmm. and the, the spiritual dimensions of it and noticed how much that contributed to my own healing mm. as a child but also um, when I returned to Hobart, just that feeling of... of um, Oh, so much, but but magic and and feeling alive and feeling equally um, insignificant mm, in nature I and love that feeling. Oh, it's just incredible. <laughs> you know what it's like <laughs> when you're on top yeah. of a mountain range and you just you know you just um, feel unlike you do in any other situation. I think mm. also. Um, yeah, I'm a real um, appreciation for the the magic qualities of nature, and I, and and there's something spiritual about that too. Mm. So you know, drew drop, dew drops on grass or falling snow, things that are just um, mesmerizingly beautiful, <laughs> um, auroras um, that just yeah, just take my breath away, and, and that somehow kind of satisfy me on a soul level Mm. yeah so you I think it was on your website that I read that you had I think you had six things that you advised to people starting out in photography and one of the ones that I read was that you needed to make friends with your inner critic yeah (laughs) How, how does that how do you how do you do that and what relevance does that have to what you do now I guess probably on a professional level mm-hmm. in yard yeah um, yeah can you talk me where, where does that come from <laughs> good question I think some of it comes from that experience of working in the in the arts therapies and and that real intense feeling of, of self-criticism that that comes up when mm. I'm sitting there painting or drawing um, even though I've got that history in the creative arts and, and other people that, that might feel the same or, or seem to not feel it. Mm. Um, but I think for most of us, there's that tendency to be really hard on ourselves. Oh, yeah. Really hard on ourselves. And um, I've definitely struggled with that through my photography journey. I think the flip side to that is that you can really use it to drive yourself to do better and do your best and then do better again if you know the light improves or (laughs) you just you know it's all it's really all about practice so I don't feel like my inner critic ever diminishes completely Mm -hmm. but but I think it kind of keeps me in check but if I let it take over I wouldn't have shown my work to anybody Mm. I wouldn't be where I am now because I wouldn't have felt that it was good enough. Yeah. Well, for that, I'm grateful that you get the better of you because your work is stunning. Um, you've Thank produced you. how many books now have you released? Only a couple. Um, mm. I did one a couple of years ago um, called Luminosity, which which mm. is 
mostly night sky photography. And that was quite a spontaneous creation, um, but that was very satisfying. Mm -hmm. um, using mostly the body of work that I already had. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was really privileged to do a collaboration with Wolf, Wolfgang. Wolfgang. And um, we did a little book on Flinders Island, mm -hmm. which, um, which was fun as well. So I've certainly got some ideas about doing more books, um, but they're a big investment. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you, has the drive for the photographic side come about satisfying a self, you know, self-desires and dreams uh, versus how much has it been important from, you know, selling the books and doing it for other people? It's really come out of my own love and appreciation for the natural world mm -hmm. and and my my I guess need to be creative and and joining the two together with my with my joy of, of being out there in in nature mm. just just seemed to suit me so well it just kind of went wow this is this is what you love doing and I was encouraged to kind of put my name to my work and really put myself out there by people that, that saw something in it. Um, so it's really come from my own uh, pleasure and mm -hmm. challenge. But the joy that I've seen in other people um, who view the work has been incredibly satisfying mm -hmm. and humbling. It's made a huge impact on um, how I share the work on um, my ability to continue with it. Mm. I would continue with it anyway, but in that sense of in that continuing to share sphere. it. Public yeah. sphere, yeah. Yeah. So um, I've, I feel fortunate when I earn anything from it, to be honest. I've been able to cut my, my other work back so that I work for myself rather than working um, for an institution um, or an organisation. So that, that's been very satisfying. Having said that, there's always room to improve it on that financial level, to sell more books or do more photo shoots or... There will always be that. <laughs> always, yeah. always that. I've been incredibly fortunate to have got some funding um, which has allowed me to do some pretty amazing things. Yeah. So I feel very grateful. Yeah, because... Mm. So you've spent time on Flinders Island mm. as an artist in residence. Yeah. Uh, more recently, Lofoten Island mm -hmm. in... On the other side of the world. Yes, in Norway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In Norway. Uh, and then there was one other, wasn't there? There was, oh, in New Zealand. That's right. Yeah, and actually yeah. We, uh, we see a lot of your work of New Zealand, even in Find Your Feet. Yeah. <laughs> in your exhibits. Yeah, nice. Um, I'm kind of interested in the recent one in Lofoten Islands. Can you sure. very briefly tell us about that experience, living there and being there? <laughs> yeah, it was just amazing. I spent... Um, four weeks there having mm -hmm. also just spent a week in Iceland <laughs> um I my decision to go there I think we came from that you know that real interest in islands and small communities and and in in beautiful places and I really um wanted to experience um a cold snowy climate and to see the northern lights and um, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't let down. It was just incredible. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. 
So where mm. where is this going to take you next? Is there more dreams in the pipeline about where you want to take your photography? There's definitely more dreams. Yeah, I just I didn't do a lot of travelling early on. So when I kind of got the travel bug and realised I could do this for photography, I just realised that, that this is what I want to be doing. Mm. Having said that, I still feel like there's a lot of work I can do in Tasmania and in Australia and I want to do that. Um, I feel like if I travel to take photos then I need to have a a higher purpose for my work. You just beat me to it. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's really important to me. So Mm. what is that higher purpose for you now? Well, it's really about using the work to give the environment a voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's been there right the way through. I talked before about the pleasure and joy I get from it, but it's really also been a lot about how can these images help to tell a story and help to protect a place and also the the cultural significance of that place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the trip to Norway, the focus was primarily around climate change mm. but also around other forms of what I termed environmental degradation through um, oil drilling, which is a huge problem in the Arctic or potentially mm. potential problem. Yeah. 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 Um, and also you know, the, the impacts we see in Tasmania of, of logging and mining and things like that are a world over mm-hmm. so um yeah it's it's been it's it gives the worker I guess a bit of a, a somber side to it um but I I think it also gives it that emotional component where mm-hmm. people can go right this is what's at risk mm-hmm. mm. and what do you hope that people do once they see that and they feel that emotional component because it's one thing to obviously feel the emotion and yeah. it's another thing to be able to do something with that. Well, I guess ideally is that, that it, it promotes people to, to act or mm. act more than they currently are. Um, I During the exhibition of the, the work from, from Luferton and Iceland and, and New Zealand with this environmental theme, I had people walking out in tears saying they couldn't speak. So I, that was really... Um, a really good sign to me that that the, that, that it's working, mm. that that it is mm. telling that story. I think for people then to go on to act, um, it's tricky if you're already kind of talking to people that are that are already converted, mm. in the sense that they're already um, really strong about strong in their action or their opinions about these issues. Um, I believe, though, that that by exhibiting work, by publishing work, that there's always that potential to reach other people mm. and to, to you know, get that story across and to promote them to act more. Yeah, and I think that's what drives me now as well is mm. for a long while I felt the pressure to be the one to provide advice on, particularly for me, and my voice has been in running. So, yep. you know, it was an easy one to have a voice in and then the more we got involved in To Find Your Feet, the more we realised that there were just extraordinary stories and these people like yourself who have what they hope is a voice that needs to be shared with communities. Um, But your voice might not necessarily be being heard in the athletic community, which the athletic community's voice might not be being heard in the environmental movement and we were starting to try and link the dots. But I 
I think it's one thing to be heard. I think I really, I go back to it, I still believe that the hardest thing is that I think we almost get empathy overload or emotional overload yep. and it becomes really easy to look at it and go, oh, that's pretty. Oh, yeah. oh gee, that. Whew. And then to walk away and, and not know how to respond, so to almost just turn it off, yep. turn the noise down. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's something we need as a community to work on is to help provide the pathways for people to make the baby steps to create positive change yeah. and I think it does start with us doesn't it yeah like we have to walk our talk absolutely <laughs> so can you tell me you know you've visibly being there seeing these locations knowing that climate change exists um mm. I'm, I'm sure we both agree with that um how has that changed the way you live your life now you know it it has changed the way I live my life I've definitely been um much more vocal about the issue and and um corresponding issues because there's so many to do with Mm. global warming Mm -hmm. um and I guess that's one of the right ways I I feel I can use my public profile um for for causes Mm -hmm. is that because I do have a bit of a following people people you know, are then exposed to, to, mm. to that. So I, I certainly through social media um, and newsletters and things, I I make sure people know, mm-hmm. you know, about certain issues, about um, petitions or share articles about recent science, things mm-hmm. like that. I'm sure I could always do more. Weird. I think, yeah, I think yeah. as you said, there's that real potential for people to go into overwhelm. Mm. I also think that um, because it's such a huge topic and there's a there's often a real sense of people feeling like nothing's being done about it, mm. there's a bit of that sense of, um, what's the word, like what can we do about it? Mm. You know, it's these people in powerful positions that really need to do something about it. Yeah. But on a day-to-day level, there are some things we can do. Um one of the basic changes I've made in the last 12 months was to really reduce my plastic use. It's not directly related to... Well, it is no, related to climate yeah. change, you know. I was going to produce way too this. much of it. Yeah. Um, but it's also um, contributes to a whole lot of pollution in the oceans and, and destroys a whole lot of wildlife. So... Mm. Um, I was already, you know, buying a lot of bulk food and things, but now I make sure that any plastics that I use um, are recycled. Mm-hmm. And people don't always know that you can go to your Coles and put all your plastic wrappings in in a, in a recycle bin, and they all get, you know, just really basic things oh, like that. Yeah, well, straight away, my life's like <laughs> zing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm listening. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, there's things that we can do like that. <clears throat> Um, and then I guess there's those kind of things that we've some of us have tried to do for years, like reducing use of electricity and, mm-hmm. and not driving too far and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not driving too much, I should say. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a huge um, it is a huge load to carry around. Like I think once mm-hmm. once you become so aware of these issues and 
this desire to help create change. It's like yeah. you can't turn that off. No. The noise is there all the time yeah. in you. It questions you. So what do you do for self-compassion? It's like, mm, <laughs> a good question. And, in fact, self-compassion itself was one of my topics in my research <laughs> early on. And so it's, it's something that I'm, I'm really interested in as a topic. Mm. But I think... Um, the photography, even though there's that, you know, that side of the story that's about the planet and, and, and what's what we're what we're doing to it, um, that's that's very um, distressing. The photography itself is therapeutic for me. Mm. So I do really enjoy it. I enjoy being out there taking the photos. Mm. And being in those environments is just so profound. Whether it's up in the mountain, you know, in Hobart or whether it's on those snowy slopes in in Norway it's very very good for my well-being mm. yeah and and it's been really good in terms of complementing that other therapy work because mm. because that um can be very challenging and to have something else that's more about pleasure and and being in those open spaces has been really good mm. um so what yeah. are you what are your beliefs on things like nutrition now mm. and um yeah the, the importance of nurturing the body mm. on a physical level like I've always well for a long time I've been really interested in in nutrition and mm. in in that level of self-care I've had a history of um stomach problems I guess so I've had a diet that's been relatively restricted um, but but also very healthy in many ways. Mm. So I guess, you know, I, I, in terms of linking it in with that, the climate change issue, I, I don't eat meat. Mm-hmm. Um, I do eat some fish, but um, I think there's changes to diet people can make that, that do really have an impact on that mm-hmm. level. Um, All animal products or just just the meat element? I have kind of played with the idea of being vegan and, and there's been times where I've certainly reduced um, and I do currently reduce, um, I don't use a lot of animal products, mm-hmm. no. I think because my diet's very restricted already, I would I would struggle without fish and eggs. Yeah. I don't eat a lot of dairy. In fact, most of it doesn't agree with me. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I certainly enjoy having lots of fruit and veggies, and 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 feel lucky we can we can have that here. Yeah, I think you know, in, in Norway everything was imported from thousands oh, of miles away. Food is terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> Four weeks would be long enough just from that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Mm. So um, we are lucky, and and I know just through my own experience how much better I feel when when I'm eating well and mm. and, and eating good food, mm. and staying active as well physically. Yeah. 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 Oh. Hmm. So, um, what is your greatest fear? That's a good question. Um, I, I think through my journey, I've I kind of came to discover that what I was fearing a lot of the time was the fear itself. Mm. I used to I used to panic a bit. Um, I had didn't enjoy flying, found, you know, got quite anxious in, in heavy traffic and things like that and, and 
found that the panic attacks themselves were were pretty destroying and, and that mm. I needed to kind of discover mindfulness and ways to manage that um, because fear and anxiety is really crippling. Mm. Mm. It's horrible. Uh, yeah, it is. But, but yeah, on, on another level, I guess I do have a real intense fear about what's happening um, to our environment and, and to to the animals that we share this planet with. Mm. And it just, mm. oh, it just breaks my heart, you know. Whenever I learn about the latest thing about polar bears disappearing or mm. elephants being hunted or whatever, like I just I just have a real, really deep-seated fear and, and anger around that stuff mm. and sadness, yeah. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, so we've talked a lot about a lot of your drivers and I, mm. I think I hear that some of that comes, it is stemming a little bit from the fear, not like running yeah. away from the fear but trying, yep. to, trying to use that fear in a positive Absolutely. way. Mm. Uh, but if you have to summarise what drives you, what would, what would it be? It's, it's I guess a mixture of that that sense of, um, wanting to, wanting to have some kind of purpose probably, mm-hmm. for my purpose to benefit, um, people in their healing journey, their recovery journey, but also, um the world we live in, the environment and, and, and other creatures and, and how we can help to, yeah, to to improve mm. the situation. It's really yeah. interesting. It's I, I've been fortunate now to interview people in science, space science, um, yeah. politics and athleticism, mm. um, art and mm. art therapy and... Uh, the list goes on. Yeah. And it almost always, when we get to this point in the conversation about fear and drives, it's almost always the same. Yeah, it's really interesting. interesting. And maybe maybe that's me. Maybe that's me just pulling people out because I connect to you sure. and I probably carry similar yeah. views. But yeah. um, it seems like everyone is driven by this sense of purpose, mm. like a, a real mm-hmm. strong need to to do their bit yeah and um that their greatest fear is that of what is happening to the world around us mm. and that we might be running out of time yeah it's a yeah. sense of urgency it's and it, yeah. it, it fascinates me that mm. we're now at this point where we are beginning to connect yeah and it was one of your colleagues dan brown wilderness photographer Great. tasmanian was yeah. out in nature with him over summer seeing the devastation of the recent fires in the rainforest oh. in tasmania last yeah. summer and it was breaking my heart yeah and i felt i felt young i felt naive I felt like I was working in retail, which mm. is a consumer behaviour. Mm. And I said to him, like, oh, I don't know if I can if I can live with this. I don't know mm. what I can do. And he turned to me and he said, Han, at some point you have to believe that there's all these amazing people out there with mm. amazing things that they're doing and eventually we'll all come together. And the more I work in this sphere, the more I'm realising maybe he's right, mm. maybe we're starting to come together on this. I hope so. So it's yeah. exciting. Yeah. But I think that's that's the other thing I was going to say is that hope, you know, I think mm. fear is, 
is probably driving a lot of us, but there does need to see, mm. be some level of hope that what we're doing is, and what we can do more of, will help. It's making a difference. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. And mm. I think if you're good at looking at the little things everywhere we look around us, there is hope. You know, yeah. the, people now turn up to a shop with their own bags or, yes. um, you know, the you do see people riding their bikes and their electric yep. bikes more. I mean, Absolutely. I'm sure there are very few people now in their houses who don't have LEDs. Yep. You know, just the little things yep. have changed a lot since even we That's were young. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think, you know, there is definitely a positive in there. Mm. Um, if there was one word to describe you uh, or a mm. phrase perhaps, do you know what that would be? No. <laughs> Not really. I I can think of words that come to mind like creative or um, mm. I guess I'm fairly reserved as well. But mm. um, yeah, but that yeah, not sure. They're probably they're good. I mean, not yeah. that I'm here judging you, but no. yeah. You know, when I think about that, for me, it, I I'm just curious. Mm. I'm so curious yeah, about the world around Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and yeah. I think that that is actually probably a driver. Yeah, definitely. So I think it's kind of nice for you know maybe I ask you because I hope that the people listening might you know might maybe they hit pause and mm, just have a think about that think. because yeah. it is quite nice to yeah just just to know hmm, yeah that's mm, me yeah I think so yeah that's true <laughs> yeah um, yeah it is useful <laughs> um, mm. so do you, do you think do you think that we ever find our feet? Is mm. you know, I I look at I look at people like Rob Blakers, who we've both mentioned, and yeah. I, he for me is a role model. I'm yep. going to be Absolutely. fortunate to podcast him in Great. the coming weeks. Great. Um, so he's for those who don't know him, he's a wilderness photographer, and when you meet mm. him, there is this intense spiritualness about him. Absolutely, oh, just, yeah, uh, yeah, it's beautiful. Him. So I look at him, and and it's hard from the outside to look at him and think gee he's found his feet he mm. knows his niche he, he's mm. there mm. do you think do you think we do or do it's a good question isn't it I I think I like to think that we do mm-hmm. but then I do certainly see life as a journey and a lot of as as not as a lesson as such, but but we do learn, you know, from everything that we do. Mm. And the more we practice, you know, the more we might get better at something. Um, But in terms of my life story, I certainly feel like I've found my feet a lot more than I could have said 10 years ago or probably Mm. even five years ago. And I think there's a whole lot of different factors in there to do with career and relationship and, and mm. purpose and, and and where I'm living and you know so and also on a deeper level just that sense of knowing who you are and I think mm. maybe that's you know for me that's the real um, crux of it is knowing who you are and, and being able to accept that and on some level mm. you know going mm-hmm. right this is who I am so therefore how can I and it seems that that's such a critical step you know, yeah, and, isn't it? Uh, yeah, again, mm. you know, I just know that coming to an understanding about this is who I am and I'm okay with that. Yeah. You know, I think it's allowed me yeah. to let other people into my life. It's allowed me to let my 
partner, fiance into yeah, my life on absolutely. a deeper level. Yeah. 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 So it's really so important. Then if if there are people listening or if you had one message for others who maybe felt like they were a bit closer to the start than the finish mm, of that journey. Yeah. <laughs> what what advice would you have for them about how how do you start turning turning the ship around or creating a change or taking one step mm. forward like what where would you start well one of the things i've learned and that i've noticed in in other people who i've worked with is that it can't be hurried mm. i think i think Although there's you know profound. right yeah and i certainly had a sense i think in my mm. mid-20s that i just wanted to be there you know i wanted mm. to be qualified and be out there doing this stuff but in reality, I, I needed to take the journey to get there and to go to some pretty dark places to do that. And not everyone goes to, to those places, but but um, it does take time and it takes a lot of inquiring into who you are and, and who you are in relation to other people in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, equally, I think if there's something there, you know, no matter how small that really draws you you know it's irresistible it's something that's that says this is who I am this is what I need to be doing in my experience following that has has been the best thing I I could have done Mm. um yeah and I think it's you know culturally we can kind of we can kind of be fed the story that we need to we need to achieve and we need to earn money and we need to buy lots of things, etc. Um, or that we need to have these, you know, kind of fairy tale lives. But I think in reality we need to take each day as it comes but mm. also have something that that, that um, gives us pleasure in a positive way and that helps us to, to develop that sense of who we are and... Mm. And hopefully, this is probably my values coming in, but to contribute in some way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I love it. <laughs> and I just think about all the people that, you know, I've been fortunate to work alongside and then mm. I think about myself and I think about family and friends and mm. I think it's spot on, you know, like it, it's easy, especially in this modern world where things come easily to to sort of feel almost like entitled to have things now. Yeah. And it's even like entitled to have your dreams now. Absolutely. And when I, I mean, in an easy way to get my head around it, I, I think about athletes, mm-hmm. particularly adults who suddenly take up running and then suddenly, you know, six months later they want to run 100K yeah. race. And I, yeah. I feel that we try to make jumps too fast. Sure. And I definitely think that if we slowed down and – sometimes let our stories catch up with us us a little bit and wonder, you know, what is driving me? Mm. You know, I think we can probably come to a much stable, more stable platform. Mm. I think when you have your two feet on the ground and you're stable in yourself, then, you know, you can actually start to make some massive leaps forward. Absolutely. (laughs) But it doesn't come at such a cost, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Just taking that time, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. I think if you're in a really stuck place, though, you know, that can be really hard too and finding that impetus to, to make the change sometimes does really require support mm. and, and it's fantastic that you can coach people to reach those dreams. And, yeah. yeah. It's interesting because when you were talking about coming back to Tasmania and, and realising that, you know, you really needed to 
do the work for yourself you know you weren't yes. in a great place like I, I was just sitting here nodding like, because yeah. that that was what happened for me as well yeah. in 2009 and yeah. when I was um I had, was fortunate enough to for someone to podcast me the other day yeah and she said to me you know what was it that that lifted you out of that place when you got back yeah. and the first step for me was admitting that I needed help yeah. Or admitting that I just wasn't, I just wasn't happy. You know, yeah. I wasn't, Absolutely. wasn't desperately sad, but I just wasn't happy. And yeah. I knew there was something missing. And I found yeah. like once I began to admit that, then I was able to, you know, accept hands of friendship or look for Wonderful. support networks. And yeah. yeah. So that yeah. for me was the first step. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. One of my role models I mentioned earlier on um, psychologist relatives did say that you know that awareness is the first step towards change really Mm. isn't it and being Mm -hmm. able to go right oh okay (laughs) (laughs) maybe something needs to change here but the change itself can be really hard Mm. Mm. and 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 it again it goes against that grain of feeling like it's wrong to be selfish it's wrong to take the time for yourself to get yourself yes on the straight and straighter and narrower yeah (laughs) pathway Um, yeah and that that's been my biggest hurdle Mm. is i'm not very good at understanding that you have to do that yeah and it's tricky because i think there's a lot of conflicting values in our society around that on one level it's a very individualized we can Mm. be entitled to everything Mm -hmm. type society and on another level we're not yeah meant to be selfish and, and to really mm. um navel gaze yeah but but in reality doing that work can really deepen you as a person and, what? Yeah. yeah and then you said you know to get to this point where you suddenly can feel like you're contributing to a society mm. I think that's when you feel like the world spins around in your favor mm-hmm. is you know you do all that work and you wonder what it's all for and yes. you feel like you're digging dirt all over yourself yes. and you just feel like you constantly want to get in the shower and wash that off, yes. and and then all of a sudden, the the I don't know, this spark comes in your favor, and mm. you can feel that pull, and you start running with it, and then you start contributing, it's and amazing. then you're like, yeah, I love life. This yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really amazing. And you know, for me, I always feel like there's more and more I I, I could or should be doing, but I do try not to put pressure on myself mm. as well too much. Oh mm. my gosh, I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> um, so, am I, are we allowed to ask whether there's a goal in place for maybe 2017 or, you know, where could we see Arwen going just in the short term, you know, going forward? It's a good question. I've kind of, I've just been so lucky with my recent overseas trips and, and really deliberately focused on those and linking them with in with the Tasmanian work. This year, the plan is to be more focused um, around home and mm. to, to to just keep kind of improving my body of work here. I've still got a bit of a backlog of photos from last year <laughs> and from a recent trip to the Tarkine and things oh, like that. Yeah. So there are things I can work on. If I go too long without being out there with my camera, I start to feel... Uh, a bit impatient to get out there again, <laughs> but also a bit like, oh, I'm not really doing enough. Mm-hmm. I did have plans to to explore a bit more of the man- mainland this year, but um, I would just, you know, I'm just going to settle into the year and, and see mm-hmm. when that might fit in. But I've definitely got some more um, amazing 
places in my sights further afield as well. Mm. Yeah. I think we're going to have to do some scheming together. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I feel at that point our paths are crossing again. That would be (laughs) wonderful. That would be really cool. Um, Owen, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Incredible. I think your story is going to connect with people on a very deep and um, broad level. So thank you. Thank you. It's a privilege. Cool. Thank Thank you. Thank you.